Welcome, welcome, especially those of you who are visiting with us this morning. Special welcome to you. My name is Joel Hubbard. I'm the lead pastor here, and um, let's get rolling. So we started a series last week on um, morality, and um, I know it's one of our all of our favorite subjects. Um, so I figured I would continue because you guys just loved it so much and wanted me to do more on it. Um, um, at least that's what I assumed. Um, and today I want to talk about, um, we're do, sort of taking different aspects of, um, or different thoughts about morality and really exploring them. And this one is on moral authority. And when I say moral authority, um, what comes to mind for you? Like moral authority, influence, what else? Judgment, okay. Scary. Scary. <laughs> Who wants that, right? The moral authority. Um, what else comes to mind? Loss of values. Loss of values. Okay. Yeah. Black and white thinking. Black and white thinking. Uh-huh. Okay. What else? Integrity. Integrity. Yeah. Yeah. On the positive side. Absolutely. What else? Truth. Truth. Okay. What else? Thankfulness. Revenge. Tell God thank him every day for what he does for us. And that's moral authority? Okay, I'll take it. <laughs> what else on moral authority? Truth and love. Truth and love. Yeah, well said. Like that. Um, any other thoughts on that? It's too early in the morning to be thinking deeply about anything, isn't it? Um, so uh, moral authority, all these things. So that's why I titled it this morning, Moral Authority. Look at me. Don't look at me. Um, because I think that we all face that. And we'll talk about that a little bit more, particularly for those of us who carry the, the, the designation of Christian or evangelical, is that there's at times this thing of look at me, don't look at me, sort of feeling and experience throughout our lives as, uh, as, as Christians or followers of Jesus. All right, um, but you may be surprised or maybe not. I think a lot of you would probably not be surprised to find out that um, for much of the Protestant, the way that the research shows from uh, folks like Robert Putnam, who um, uh, has written extensively about this as a political scientist, but and the Pew Research uh, Forum as well has written about this, done research around how secular society or people that are non-church going view the church. And uh, overwhelmingly, um, what we're getting back as feedback is that there's not this sort of trust in the moral authority of the church, of the Protestant church. Um, and uh, particularly, he looked at the, did quite a bit of work on the Protestant church as well as the Catholic church, but, uh, but looking at what are the, um, what is sort of the, the viewpoint from the uh, people who don't attend church, how do they see the church? And um, that was a big one. I've run across quite a few people in my work, um, aside from this, my coaching work, who actually find it surprising to find that I'm a pastor of a church. And, um, and the question they ask me is, how do, you, you know, how do you handle the immorality of the current church? Like to them, it's actually not that they see it as a place that is the bastion of morality, but actually bereft of morality. Um, and, um, and so, and it's not like they're angry. There's no anger. It's just like really curious when they find out that I'm a pastor, 
uh, of an evangelical church. It's like, wow, you know, what a, what a surprise. Um, and so there's this, there's a, there's a lot of, of, of concerns around this because for one, on one side, we can say as the, as people who are in the church, well, they're just blind and they don't know what they're talking about, you know, but the problem is that within the church itself, there's a division between those on one side and those on the other side. And both are lobbying insults at each other saying that they have, each side has lost their moral authority. So it's happening within the church itself. Uh, and, and it's, and it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a problem because we can say that we're right and right, 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 right all day long. But at the end of the day, we sort of have to also look at the scoreboard. That's one, one of the things that we have to kind of do occasionally is look up and say, hey, but actually, how are we doing? And if for the scripture and what we find in the Bible is that even Paul uses, the Apostle Paul uses the world's viewpoint of the church as an indictment on the church itself. So you can't ignore that if we're going to be, um, if we're going to use the Bible as our, as our, as our source, right? So those things are so important, but here we are uh, in this sort of place as a, as a, as a church, as people who go to church or, or, or who attend church or starting to attend church is that we're having to look at this situation we're in, particularly now in America, where it's hard to find even leaders that we would say, these are people I can trust because um, they have this moral authority. Are you with me? I mean, so many pastors, um, and I know so many having been in this world for a long time, who um, sadly have made some real, real, real major, major, um, you know, um, mistakes in the area of morality. And I'm not just talking about sexual morality. I'm talking about morality in general. And it's, and it's been heartbreaking and it's difficult and it really leaves a lot of people sort of disillusioned and wondering, well, then who can we trust and who can we sort of uh, follow, right? Because you guys aren't, many of you, I mean, you don't, none of you here, as far as I know, other than my assistant Jim, are in, are in some sort of full-time ministry where, I mean, you're, you're coming from your lives, coming to church, and this is a place you sort of come to, to hope to get something out of the church, to hope to, to get, you know, some kind of guidance, to be lifted up, to be encouraged. And, uh, and so um, this, is, this is where we are. And, and so my heart is with um, you and also with pastors who are struggling and who are falling as well. All right, so let's take a look at some of the things that, some of the reasons, and I'm gonna list out some that I think are really relevant and then some ways forward uh, for us. So um, last week I talked about how um, this uh, research um, psychologist named Jonathan Haidt, who wrote um, quite a bit on this and has done some YouTube videos on it. So if you wanna look at it, but it's called The Righteous Mind and it is a massive work that he produced on where morality originates from. And that it is, it is that there's a particular bent we're born with. And on his research, thousands and thousands of people, um, it seems like people pretty much split up um, with their viewpoints on morality along the same lines as, um, and it can be politically split in the same way. So it's pretty, pretty interesting work that he's done on it. And, and I gave you those last week. And if you weren't here, I'll give them to you again. And unfortunately, um, we're going to solve this problem. I promise of having this on projection. Um, my goal is by Sunday of next week, you will have projection up here. So, um, but we'll give you, you'll have to look up 
your, through your Bibles on your, on your phone, or um, if you have an, an actual printed Bible, which I'd be surprised if any of you still do. Uh, oh, someone's waving over here. I got my Bible. Look at this. It's in print. Okay. I'm a little bit better than the rest of you. Uh, um, so uh, anyways, yeah, so we got, we got some Bibles here, some, some like printed Bibles and some on devices. Um, and so we're going to look at some of them. But what I wanted to do is take um, Jonathan Haidt and his research sort of broke them up by uh, five key components or characteristics of morality. And then I want to look at scriptures and the reason why the church splits exactly along the same lines on politics. It's, it's remarkable. But, uh, but look at actual scriptures and then... Um, see what's going on there. So the first one was, was uh, Jonathan Haidt list is, is uh, harm care, harm care. Uh, so harm slash care. And uh, this is the issue of uh, social justice. Do we care about people who are being affected negatively, right? So social justice has become um, something that many liberals and those who vote Democrat um, uh, sort of lean into, right? So you get this harm care that that tends to be more of a, of a, uh, of a liberal sort of way of thinking and, um, and social justice is a thing that they, um, that they hold on to and thing they, they push and argue for. All right. So this is found a lot within scripture, a lot like the prophets. I mean, you say the prophets from, you know, uh, the early prophets all the way to the latter prophets. You have this constant theme over and over again about caring for the poor, the oppressed. What are you guys doing about that? You don't, do you care? Do you not care? And the prophets weren't the people that were main and they weren't the main kind of like today in, in Christianity, we think of like the prophets would be your pastors, but they wouldn't be. The prophets were never the, 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 the pastors. They were actually the ones who were on the way outside of the entire religious system. They identified with it, but they were viewed as being on the outside because they were always pointing out the problems within the church. And who wants people like that? <laughs> you know, I mean, as a pastor, I kind of like it when people tell me, hey, great sermon, great job. You know, that's, that makes me feel good. But... Uh, but that prophetic voice kind of goes, mm, you know, and then I go home and I think about that. And then Monday morning, I think about Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday, I'm thinking about that, right? So the prophets were the ones who were marginalized by Israel because they were seen and oftentimes, you know, chased down and killed by the kings of Israel because they spoke in such uh, direct terms. But they spoke against economic injustice. And that is empirical. There's no argument about that. That's fact. And every scholar knows this to be empirically true. There's no way around it. The prophets always argued that there's economic injustice and you frankly don't care is their, their point to, the, to these kings and to these people who are in power, right? So you get the prophets on one side saying that, saying that matters and, and you don't seem to care. So liberals who are Christians, who are Bible-believing followers of Jesus, but vote Democratic, would say these are the scriptures that they hold on to and argue for, okay? So what I'm asking you this morning to do is, whether, whichever side you're on, is to, be, is to sort of pull back from your knee-jerk sort of bias right now, because I, can, I, I know that I have mine. And as soon as I hear something and it triggers that, it's like shut down, you know, it's like they're in that category. They're bad. They're wrong. You know, I'm right. So last week, that was the title of the sermon, you know, true morality. I'm right. You're wrong. Um, 
So that kind of thinking starts immediately, right? But that's not, that's not being, um, giving yourself a chance, right? So give yourself a chance, give your mind a chance um, to listen well and listen to um, how the division in the, in the use of scripture is being used from one side to the other, lobbing verses, lobbing scripture at each other, right? Um, and we're not moving forward <laughs> at all in this debate. Okay, so Isaiah 1, 16 through 17, that is the verse that um, I pulled. I could have pulled probably about 300 other verses throughout the prophets, but um, this one sort of captures it in a nutshell. Isaiah 1, 16 through 17, wash and make yourself clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, please uh, plead the case of the widow. These are people that were economically marginalized and had no chance. And that's the reason why Isaiah is saying, understand that this has significant economic downturn for them. I mean, they, there's no way they can do, they can't do anything about this. Once they become a widow, it's economic uh, crash, you know, for them. So, um, plead for their case, fight for them. Otherwise no one will, and they will continue to lose out. So this is Isaiah arguing for this, this case. Now the next one is fairness and reciprocity. Fairness and reciprocity also, according to Jonathan Haidt, based on his research, ends up being another one that's on the left, okay, political left. Fairness and reciprocity, um, meaning that is there economic fairness? Is there fairness of opportunity? Um, and those are the questions that are being um, asked and talked a lot about today in our very politically heated conversation that we're having in America. Um, there's a, again, there's a bunch of verses, but one that really captures it viscerally uh, for many is this passage in Acts chapter two. This is the formation of the church. This is immediately after Jesus has been resurrected, taken up to heaven, and now the church is starting. And how do they start? They start by meeting regularly, and they start by sharing their possessions so that there would be no one who would be in need. They lived in a communal lifestyle, a, a basically almost like a commune. Um, and that is not what I'm advocating, so please don't hear that or, or that others would advocate for that necessarily. But it's just for us to understand what the principle behind the passage is. That's the most important thing, not what they actually pulled off and did, because there's a lot of things that the early church did that we, we couldn't do today. But what was the guiding principle behind that? So Acts chapter 2, verse 44, all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And the practice continues. And, and uh, there's even um, stories about this. And, and, and uh, Paul has to deal with, Peter has to deal with it. But there's, the, you know, there's even this thing of where one, people would sell off their the extra homes or extra things that they had in order to meet needs. And sometimes that went pretty pretty badly too. So, um, but that was the practice was in order to make sure that people uh, had their needs met. In other words, the guiding principle behind that or the guiding, uh, what would you say? Um, guiding maybe heart behind it would be a heart of compassion, like a desire to see people be okay. Okay, so it's not just we're going to do, uh, this is the policy, this is rather thinking about what's driving that underneath is that do, do, are you moved by compassion as a human being? 
And, and if you are, then, then how is that going to manifest itself when it comes to people who do not have and who are without? Okay, does that make sense? Um, all right, so now on to the next three, which the next three uh, tend to be those on the political right. So this one is in-group loyalty, in-group loyalty. Um, so this is in Genesis chapter 12. So I'll give you that before I start talking. So if you, have, if you want to look it up, you can. But in-group loyalty has to do with sort of a tribalistic or tribal mindset, like we are part of a group. Okay, so this is this is the thinking that is, um, you know, um, uh, we're Americans, and so that's sort of the the the, the uni unifying um, uh, glue to who to to the society is we're first Americans, and so um, you know, symbol of the flag and and that real intense like this is us this is us first we're Americans right. This happens in every. Every group, by the way, this has happened for thousands of years, as for as long as we have human history. Um, so this is a normal thing. This isn't just a, a good or bad thing. So please don't think in terms of good and bad at this point. Just think in terms of this is how humans behave in general. And so there's this sort of like I need to fit. I need to be part of a group. I need to feel at home, right? So for a while, when I was younger, I rejected my very, very, very French upbringing, and in which my dad insisted we speak French everywhere, including in public, and that was so difficult because nobody understood us and I felt like such an outsider as a kid growing up in this country. And uh, that carried all the way through my teens. And finally, I said at 16, I'm never speaking French again. And I stopped speaking French. And now I regret it because I've lost a lot of it. I still understand it, but I, I, I have a hard time speaking it. And, uh, and it was, and, but, but because I rejected it so much, you know, I was rejecting sort of this, this culture that I'd been raised with. But then there came a point in time where I thought, huh, I missed that, right? And then there was a sense of, I know that if I hung around with French-speaking people, and I was around some of them recently, and there was a whole group of them, and they were from Belgium, and they were speaking French. Immediately, there was a sense of like, I'm at home. There's this really strange feeling that for those of you who are bilingual, for those of you who have, uh, who, who have a different culture of upbringing, you know what I'm talking about. There's this like connection right away. There's even certain words that when they're spoken to me mean something very different than they do in English, the same words, but they mean something different. At a, more at a, at a heart level, right? So that's sort of the thing of where, where we like groups, we like you know, ethnic groups, tribal groups, we like those because they give us a sense of belonging and a sense of security around those things. And so this happens a lot more on the right than on the left right now, politically. So this would be Genesis chapter 12 is a great one that sort of captures this. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. Do you see that sort of like you, your group, your people. This is the people that will come from you. And there's a sense of like, there's the outsider and then there's the insider, right? Anybody who curses you, I will curse. They're, the, they're on the outside of the in-group that will be these people, these Jewish people um, and this uh, Jewish nation that would emerge from Abraham. Um, and then there's, uh, the next one is authority and respect. 
um, authority and respect. Um, and this is sort of a, a deference to authority. Like, you know, on the left, there's a, there's a push towards anti-hierarchical kind of structures. On the right, there's a, a respect of that. There's a, 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 you know, these people are there by merit. And so we honor that and we respect that, right? So you tend to have that. Now, this is in generalities. Remember, I'm speaking about generalities. I'm not speaking about every individual. There are plenty of individuals who have various expressions of all of this and who would say, man, on that side, I'm more, <laughs> I lean more left. On this side, I lean more right. That's true of all humans. None of us are, are categories, right? We're, we're, we're too complex for that. So this is just a, in, in general, the way people have responded across the country. All right, so you have authority, respect. First Samuel 8, this is an interesting one because First Samuel 8, uh, verse four. So the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel, who was a prophet. There was no king for Israel at this time. There were just these leaders like prophets and, and judges, but there weren't any kings. And so they come to Samuel at Ramah and they said to him, you are old. Doesn't that feel really good for those of us who are getting there? You are old. <laughs> Time to move on, you know? Um, and that's basically what they say to him. You're old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. And then if you continue to read the rest of that, there's this like argument because God says, yeah, but if you want a king, he's going to enslave your children, basically. Make them into soldiers and they're going to have to fight and then he's going to tax you heavily. And so, and, so, and people say, and you know what the people say? We'll take it. That sounds like a good deal. We, in other words, we're more willing to be led because we need that. We need that sort of authority figure. We need that. That's a, now, that's not a bad thing necessarily, although here it, it, it is surfaced as a bad thing. But it's not a bad thing in the sense that there are stages in which we need that in our lives. But it can't be the thing that you stick and stay at for the rest of your life. And I'm going to argue that for, for all of them together, is that they, they, all five have to live uh, together and in tension with each other because they're so important. Um, and, um, and I think they, they, um, they learn to live healthy when they're in that complex relationship with each other. All right, the next one is purity sanctity. This one is one that you're going to immediately connect to, particularly if you're raised um, in the church. I was raised in, in holiness Pentecostal, and then um, I became relaxed and started going to uh, the Assemblies of God. Now, for some of you, you're like, for me, that's like still way, way, way strict and all that. Yeah, but for me, that was like, woohoo, wow, this is like really relaxed and laid back. I mean, <laughs> compared to what I grew up with, this is really chill. These people allow you to, you know, you have to dress up in a suit every Sunday, but you know what? At least you can have different styles. I mean, and you can, you know, the, the, the women can actually wear makeup. Wow, this is like remarkable. So I grew up in an environment where uh, it, the, the purity sanctity thing leaned way heavy on women. And, um, and you know, men, of course, were, were not supposed to be sleeping around. But nonetheless, it still happened. But it was in that context of very purity around sexuality. That was the predominant um, sort of way purity culture expressed itself. And that, again, leans more right than it does left. But purity... Sanctity, and there's plenty in the scriptures about this, right? So 1 Peter uh, 1 is a good sort of nutshell um, expression of this. And, and again, when I read from the New Testament, these authors are taking their theology from the Old Testament. That's how they're doing it. So whatever you see in Peter, he's just taking it from the Old Testament and then expanding on it, right? So 1 Peter 1 verse um, 14 
as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Now, Galatians has this whole lengthy thing in chapter five about this. Do not conform to the lusts of your flesh. Do not follow them. Do not, you know, so there's a lot of that in there as well, right? So scripture has all of it. Now, this is all being lobbed at each other from the different sides, but it's all in scripture. So perspective is we, I think we could be helped by just looking at it and recognizing maybe there's truth that's beyond the way I perceive it in this very moment. And maybe I can relax and open myself up to see scripture in a broader sense. And instead of forcing the texts I don't particularly care for or like into my viewpoint, uh, maybe I can relax and, and, and see it all for fresh, maybe, and see where that takes us. All right, so there's that. Um, let's look at why um, the, uh, uh, the, some of the factors that have helped or caused the church to lose um, its authority, moral authority. And when I mean church, I mean Protestant, Catholic church predominantly, you know, um, which are the two largest uh, branches of Christianity. Um, okay, so first of all, uh, let me use as an example. So this is just a microcosm of this, but the Pentecostal church, which is the fastest and uh, fastest growing denomination has been, and when I say Pentecostal, I mean small p, not Pentecostal as in tongue speaking, um, strictly tongue speaking denomination, but small p Pentecostal refers to charismatics as well. Okay, so that's how they do it in, the, in, in religious uh, research um, is it's done in that way. So small p, Pentecostal church. The Pentecostal church has been the fastest growing movement now for a long time, a long time. It is credited for much of what has happened in the continent of Africa in terms of its, the, the conversion to Jesus, the, the, what, the massive amounts of people. Um, there's one Nigerian church that, um, that when they do gatherings, conferences, uh, they, they expect about 2 million to show up. Yeah. So they have a, there's one that's actually has an entire, um, city that they've started. So it's, it's just a massive, massive, massive. The Pentecostal church, um, started in the early 1900s. And, uh, at that point it, it, when it began, it was viewed as bad, as dangerous, as wrong, okay? It was not the thing that was the main and center of Christianity. Now Pentecostal is, is very much that. There's entire universities, Pentecostal, you know, um, universities and, and, and colleges. So those are, that's pretty common now. But back then it wasn't. It was rejected. It was viewed with suspicion. But the thing is that the reason why so many people began being drawn to it was because it was new. And when something is new, it's, there's this sort of new shiny thing that draws a lot of people, for sure. I'm one of those that's drawn to the new shiny thing. But then there's also the fact that it's probably not compromised yet by institutional interests. Are you with me? Because here's what happens when institutional interest kicks in, is that their interest is in the survival of the institution over the individual's care and needs. And I know this, being one who's compromised by institutional interests. And I'm okay admitting that. 
It's a constant compromise. I have to always think about what's the need of the institution as well as what's the need of the individual. And there are times I've erred on one side more than I've erred on the other side. So those are truth. That's what happens. And so when something is new like this, there's a sense that I can trust it because it's probably not yet been compromised in that way. And, um, and it seems also fairly open when you first come in. There's not yet a whole lot of sort of boundary lines drawn around what this group is, who's in and who's out. When the vineyard began, the vineyard began the same way. We're a vineyard church. In the 1970s and 80s, it began very much that way, where at first there was large conferences. And guess who came to those conferences? Mainliners. Weird people. Thank you, Chris. Yes. Are you speaking as one who identifies as a weird person? Okay. Um, there were. There were a lot. There were outside a lot of hippies, a lot of people who were coming in still high and coming into these gatherings and experiencing, well, all sorts of spiritual experiences, partly due to drugs and partly due to maybe Jesus. So, you know, it was a little bit of both. Uh, thank God that uh, God's okay with a lot of that and just sort of meets us where we are, right? God meets us where we are. So this is where it began. It began by drawing, but guess who he drew from? In terms of the church people, it drew from every denomination, and these people did not feel like there were hard lines around it. That's why they felt they could come in, right? There was still a, a thing of, I don't know what we are exactly, but what we do know is we're experiencing something transcendent, something that is changing our lives. And when you're hungry and you're coming in, you don't care what are your all, give me the long list of your doctrinal beliefs to see if they match up exactly along the same lines as mine. When you're hungry for transformation and there's food, spiritual food, you're going to go there. And that's what the vineyard was. And that's what Pentecostalism was. Pentecostals were, I mean, they were viewed as like, you you people, you people are drawing from like uneducated people and like poor, right? And they, these were the outsiders. Nobody wanted them. Nobody cared if they showed up in their church or didn't. But the Pentecostals were like, bring them. It was like, you know, the Statue of Liberty. Bring me your, you're tired. Bring me all these people. Like Pentecostals were like, yeah, bring me, I'll, we'll take them. We'll take them. And then these people began having these powerful spiritual experiences. And then they were able to minister to people. And pretty soon the socioeconomic stratification flattened out within the church services. Because you'd have some wealthy, you know, prestigious, uh, you know, leader coming into the service. And they were being given communion by a person who was, you know, a uh, uh, worked it, 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 in, a, in a kitchen cleaning up or a busboy or something. And they were serving communion to these people. And they were ministering and praying for these people. And all kinds of great things were happening, right? So at first, Pentecostalism had moral authority because it was new and it wasn't compromised by institutional interests. And it was also... One that drew people in who were on the outside. And so what began to happen was more of this fairness 
which is again, now today, a left-leaning value. And it was also purity, it had both. It was bringing in people from all sides. This is what the church should look like. This was the church that Jesus Christ began because his own followers were politically divided. That's actually true. Historically, that's actually the way the church began because it wasn't interested as much in those things as it was in all of you are welcomed. And together, we're going to discern what God is saying. Not one person who is leaning to this side or another person who's leaning to that side. In fact, when the early church had a problem with feeding, um, the, the, there was a problem that was raised, which was that, the, that widows uh, from, uh, who were Gentile widows were not being fed quite as much as the Jewish widows were being fed. And so guess what the early church did? Who were predominantly Jewish? They said, okay, we're gonna make, we're gonna, we're gonna uh, raise up deacons. And you know who the deacons were? What ethnicity? Not Jewish. They said, great, there's a problem and you're being taken advantage of. We're gonna actually put the ones that are being taken advantage of in position of power to ensure that that doesn't happen, right? So you start to see this stuff that's happening in the early church that's really uh, remarkable because it is bringing all sides together. Lastly, I want to say it wasn't seeking justification or an apologetic for everything. It wasn't seeking justification or an apologetic for everything. I think um, one of the things, again, that when we have such certainty and such exactness and precision around what we believe and, and how we, we think about things, that it doesn't leave any room for, uh, for I don't know, mystery. And when we get so dogmatic about things, we actually lose our moral authority. But when we remain in a place of, there's things that I don't know. But here's the, the story I do have. Once I was blind, but now I see. And the blind man in that story is one who's being questioned because something has happened that didn't fit within the religious belief system of, the, of, of these, these, uh, these God followers. And the Pharisees who were the guardians of that institution were not quite happy with what was going on. And so they begin to test this man's beliefs against their doctrinal beliefs to see, are you inside or are you on the outside? Because if you're on the outside, then everything you say is immediately dismissed. And that's what we do. We put people in categories so we can dismiss everything. Oh, they're a lefty. Oh, they're, they're on the right. So we just, just, that's the way you categorize and dismiss automatically. But this man was healed. This man is healed. And what he says is once I was blind, but now I see is the only story I have. You can argue and you'll beat me in that because you guys are the ones who know. But all I can tell you is that I've been transformed. And I think if the church returns to that, that we, Vine 39, returns to stories of transformation rather than argumentation about who's right, who's wrong, about knowing that we know what we know and we're so sure of it. And I'm one who loves that stuff. That's why I went to seminary. That's why I got my master's of divinity. That's why I've continued to read scholarly works. I love that stuff. But the thing is that what it ended up making me early on when I was so drawn, like I'm still drawn to it, but I was drawn to it for security is that it turned me into a bit of a jerk. At least that's what my wife told me. And I think she's right. 
And she's like, you know, at one point I liked you because there was like real like passion for Jesus. But now I, what I see is like, you, you, you're just a jerk. <laughs> like <laughs> you, you know so much and you argue and, 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 and it just doesn't, and I want the Joel that I married. And I remember hearing that and feeling all kinds of like resistance and anger and all. But um, that word was one of, you know, you, you, every once in a while you hear something like that, it just sort of goes right through you to your heart. And it's like, dang it, that thing, I can't get it out. You know, you try to pull it back out, but it won't come out. You know, it's, uh, so it, it's, it's, yeah, it, it just had that effect. And that began to make me aware of how much I had lost my sense of uh, it, it mystery and ex, of, of the divine. Like God is beyond me. I don't understand that God is not a Republican and God is not a Democrat. God is not male or female. God is not um, an evangelical. God is not, you know, any of these categories we put God in. And the moment I think God is a Republican, God is in my back pocket, God's like me, is the moment that I have decided to create God after my own image. And I must always say no to that impulse. Say that the God that I worship is somebody, some, some, something way beyond me. And I don't understand fully. I have experience of the divine. And that's what makes me say once I was blind, but now I see. But if you're going to push me to force me into defining all of that and creating a doctrinal belief around that, I'm out because I'm, I'm too hungry these days. I want more of God. I need more of God. And that I think my friends, is when we return to that, to the self-awareness of I don't have this figured out. I'm still in growth process myself. I think then we're going to start to return more and more to this moral authority. And people are looking for transformed lives, not people who have all of the right answers. They're looking for transformed lives. The suspicion that the world has when they find out, you know, when I'm playing racquetball with a bunch of my friends now, these guys are friends of mine now, and I love to go hang out with them and talk with them. But when somebody new comes in and they find out that I'm a, I'm a pastor, and there's always this thing where one of them will go, hey, watch your mouth, there's a pastor in the court right now. <laughs> and they do that, you know, they, do, they're not, they don't actually really believe that or be serious about it. They do that just to get, you know, yeah. just to get some stuff going. So, um, but then it's like, uh, you know, there's, there's this, this like suspicion then, you know, and if we fall short of that performance, this last thing I want to say real quick, sorry, I'm going along here, but there's this sort of Christian perfectionism that all of us feel like we must carry. And what I want to say is maybe we let go of the Christian perfectionism because it doesn't work or it does not work. There are people that are actually in better shape than we are that are not going to church. You know, there's like, that's okay for us to acknowledge that. But here's what we did when we said yes to Jesus, or when we are in the process of saying yes to Jesus, is we're saying yes to the work of transformation in our lives. Not that we're there, but that we're saying, yes, I'm willing to walk the path. I'm willing to do my work. I'm willing to acknowledge that I'm far from being even close to perfect, and that's okay. I receive the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and I go onto this path of transformation. Amen? Amen. Be patient with yourself. Self-growth is tender. It's holy ground. There is no greater investment. So my prayer for all of you this week is to be patient with yourself and give yourself grace when you fall short. On the days that you have a choice to retreat into safety or move forward into growth, may you choose growth. 
over and over and over again. May you seek moments of solitude and embrace the uncomfortable, for it's in these moments that we actually feel the growth. Find gratitude for those growing pains because you are being stretched to become more. May you use those moments to be, as a call into introspection and be willing to go deep. You are being called to go deeper. Trust that your self-growth is tender, that it's holy ground, and it's your greatest gift to the world. Amen. Amen.